Chapter Five of The Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. Chapter Five. Outside in the streets, his joy increased. Nothing had mattered. Beneath all surface sensations, there was the deep fundamental rapture, as of a wild animal that has been caught and is now loose and free a squirrel that has escaped from the trap and whisking and bounding through sunlight and shadow understands that its four paws are still under it and that only a little of its fur is left in those iron teeth security after peril articulate man or dumb brute can one taste a fuller bliss but he must share and impart it mavis he might not go dashing back to hampshire the fortnight's exile prevented him from joining her there. A broad grin spread across his face. What was that learned saying that his old schoolmaster, Mr. Fenley, used to be so fond of repeating? If Mohammed cannot go to the mountain, the mountain must come to Mohammed. The memory of this classical quotation tickled him, and he went chuckling into the Cannon Street post office and wrote out a telegraph form. Reinstatement, come at once shall expect you this evening without fail. Having sent off the telegram, he presently ordered his dinner in the grill-room of a Ludgate Hill restaurant. Yes, let's see your notion of a well-cooked rump-steak. And I'll try some of the famous lager beer. Oh, bottle of draughts all the one to me. And he snapped his fingers and laughed. Now, sharp's the word, Mr. Waiter. I'm fairly famished. The lager beer, served in a glass vase, was delicious sunbeams distilled to make a frothing and unheady nectar the grilled steak and the fried potatoes could not have been better done at the buckingham palace kitchens never for three weeks had food tasted like this all had been dust and ashes in his mouth since the row began then with appetite satisfied and digestion beginning he smoked if you've anything in the shape of a really good threepenny cigar i can do with it but don't fob me off with any poor trash, for I've my pipe in my pocket. The waiter said he had a truly splendid threepenny, and Dale, enjoying it, talked to the waiter. He could not help talking, he could not help laughing. After so much silence it was a treat to hear the sound of his own loud jolly voice, and he gave himself the treat freely. "'You're from the country, sir,' said the waiter politely. "'Yes, bullseye,' said Dale, with boisterous good humour hand him a coconut. But may I ask how you guessed my place of origin so pat? Well, sir, I don't know, sir. Haven't had you here before, I think. Oh, you're very clever, you Londoners. I don't doubt you can all see through a brick wall. Yes, I'm from the country, but I'm beginning to know my way about the town, too. Ever been on a steamboat to Rodhaven? Rodhaven? No, sir. Then Dale told the waiter, about the heaths and downs and woods that lie between Rodhaven and Old Manningley. Prettiest part of the world that I know of, he said proudly. You spend your next holiday there. Take the four-horse Sharibont from Rodhaven Pier, and when you get to the Roebuck at Rodchurch, you get off the vehicle and ask for the postmaster. Yes, sir? He won't eat you, and Dale laughed with intense enjoyment of his humor. He's not a bad chap, really, though his neighbors say he's a bit of a tartar. I'll give you my word he'll receive you decently and stand you dinner into the bargain. I know he will, and for why? Because I am that gentleman myself. 
he could not resist the pleasure of rounding off his sentence with the grand word gentleman and he was gratified by the waiter's meekly obsequious reception of the word thank you sir much obliged sir when leaving he gave the waiter a generous tip Today his walk through the gaily crowded streets was sweet to him as a lazy truant ramble in the woods during church time. Everything that he looked at delighted him, the richness of shop windows showing all the expensive, useless goods that no sensible person ever wants, the liveries worn by pampered servants standing at carriage wheels, the glossy coats of meddlesome prancing horses, the extravagant dresses of fine ladies mincingly walking on the common public pavement, the stolid grandeur of huge policemen, and the infinite audacity of small newspaper boys, the life, the color, the noise. It seemed as if the busy city and the pleasure-loving West End alike unfolded themselves as a panorama especially arranged for one's amusement, and his satisfaction was so great that it mutely expressed itself in words which he would have been quite willing to shout aloud, such as, Bravo, London! You aren't a bad little place when one gets to know you. There's more in you than meets the eye, first view. And because he was so happy himself, he could sympathize with the happiness of everybody else. He was glad that the rich people were so rich and the poor people so contented. He admired a young swell for buying flowers from a woman with a shawl over her head. He mused on all the honest, well-paid toil that had gone to the raising of the grapes and peaches at a Piccadilly fruiterer's. Live and let live, that's a good model all the world over. When he saw babies in perambulators, he would have liked to kiss them. When he saw an elderly man with a pretty young woman, he wanted to nudge him and say jocosely, You're in luck, old chap, aren't you? When couples of boy and girl lovers went whispering by, he smiled sentimentally. That's right, you can't begin too soon. Never mind what Ma says. If you like him, stick to him, lassie. And though still alone, he felt no loneliness. His own dear companion was soon coming to him. Throughout the walk, the only thoughts tinged with solemnity were those which sprang from his always deepening gratitude to Mr. Barradine. He wanted to pay a ceremonious call for the purpose of expressing his thanks, and he felt that he should do this immediately. But for the life of him he could not remember whether the great man's London house was situated in Grosvenor Square or Grosvenor Place. Mavis, of course, would know. Or he could find out from one of these policemen. He hesitated, and it was the state of his collar that decided him. He would postpone the visit of gratitude and do it first thing tomorrow morning in a clean collar. The hall clock at his lodgings announced the hour as close on five, and he mentally noted that the timepiece was inaccurate, three and a half minutes behind Greenwich. As usual, the hall was untenanted, with no servant to answer questions. He searched the dark recesses of a dirty letter-rack on the chance that he might find a telegram from his wife waiting for him. Then he went gaily up the interminable staircase, making nothing now of its five flights, enjoying their steepness as productive of agreeable exercise. Hello, he muttered, what's this? A woman's hat and parasol were lying on a chair, and there was a valise on the floor by the chest of drawers. Turning, he gave a cry of delight. Mavis was stretched on the bed, fast asleep. She woke at the sound of his voice, scrambled down, 
and flung herself into his arms. "'Will, oh, Will, my dearest Will!' "'My darling, my little sweetheart, but how have you come to me? Have you flown?' "'Don't be silly.' He was devouring her face with his kisses, straining her to his breast in a paroxysm of pleasure, almost suffocating himself and her in the ardor of the embrace, and jerking out his words as though they were gasped for breath. "'When did you get my wire? Why, it's impossible. I only wired 243. Is it witchcraft, or just a dream?' "'Did you wire? I never got it. I was so anxious that I couldn't stay there any longer without news. So I just packed and came. Will, be sensible. Tell me everything.' "'Best of news. Reinstated.' he bellowed the glad tidings over her head. She was all warm and palpitating in his arms, her dear body so delicate and fragile, and yet so round and firm, her dear face soft and smooth, with lips that trembled and smelled like garden flowers. "'Did you come up by the nine o'clock train? How long have you been waiting here?' "'Oh, don't bother about me. I'm nothing. It's you I want to hear about.' Then they sat side by side on the narrow little bed, he with his arm firmly clasped round her waist, and she nestling against him with her face hidden on his breast. Mave, my bird, I can't never leave you again. I've been just a lost dog without you. Did you start before you got my Sunday letter? Yes. Every day I wrote, didn't I, just like the old time? But I've a bone to pick with you, young lady. What do you mean by not writing to me more regular, not even so much as a postcard these last three days? Well, I, I couldn't. I was just too anxious while it all remained in suspense. Yes, but you might have sent me a card. I told you cards would satisfy me. I was thinking of you off and on all yesterday. I can tell you it was just about the longest day of my life. Did you and Auntie go to church? No, oh, don't ask questions about me when I'm dying for a full account of it. He asked no more questions. After stooping to kiss the fragrant coil of hair above her forehead, he burst out into his joyous tale of triumph. It was Mr. Barradine that did the trick for me, and with enthusiasm he narrated the gloriously opportune arrival of the friend at court. Indeed, his enthusiasm was so great that he could not keep still while speaking. He got off the bed and walked about the room, brandishing his arms. He's just a tip-topper. If you could have been there to hear him, you wouldn't have left off crying. I tell you, I was fairly overcome myself. It was the way he did it. Of course, he said, I want my friend to come out of it, as I honestly believe he deserves. They couldn't stand up against him half a minute. But mind you, Mave, and Dale stopped moving and speaking solemnly, he's aged surprisingly these last few years. He's more feeble-like than ever one would think, seeing him on his horse. I mean, his bodily frame. The intellect's more powerful, I should make the guess, than ever it was. And mind you, here's another thing, Mave. And he spoke even more solemnly. All this is going to be a lesson to me. I've worn my considering cap most of the time I've been away from you. And, Mave, I'm going to lay to heart the fruits of my experience. All's well that ends well, old lady. But once bit, twice shy and in the future I'm going to trim my sails so as to avoid another such an upset. He came back to bed and sat beside her again. I shan't be too proud to say the gray mare's the better horse when it comes to steering through the etiquette book, and I mean to mend my manners by Maeve's advice. My dear Will, my true husband, I'm so glad to think it's ended as we wished. 
her joy in his joy was beautiful to see. Though her pretty eyes were flooded by sudden tears, her whole face was shining with happiness, and she pressed both her hands against him and raised her lips to his lips with the rapid movements of a child that craves a caress from its loved and venerated guardian. There, he said after a long hug, now use your hanky and let's be jolly and begin to enjoy ourselves. You and I are going to have the best treat this evening that London can provide. But I think that now you come, I'll do my duty first, and then throw myself into pleasure without alloy. What's his address? Whose address? Mr. Barradine's. How do you mean? His address here in London? Yes. Number 181, Grosvenor Place. Ah, I thought it was the place. And yet I couldn't feel sure it wasn't the square. Now you shall tie my tie for me. And getting out a new collar, he told her that he would go to thank Mr. Barradine there and then. He would be less than no time fulfilling this act of necessary politeness. And while he was away, she was to see the people of the house and get a proper married couple's bedroom in lieu of this bachelor's crib. Mavis, however, thought that Dale was mistaken in supposing the ceremonious call necessary or even advisable, and she gently tried to dissuade him from carrying out his purpose. She considered that a carefully written letter would be a better method of communication to employ in thanking their grand ally. But Dale was obstinate. He said that in this one matter he knew best. It was between him and Mr. Barradine now, a case of man to man. He'll look for it, Maeve, and would take a very poor opinion of me if I had the manhood to go straight and frank and say, I thank you. Trust your old William for once more, Maeve. And he laughed heartily. I tell you what I felt I wanted to do at the GPO was a leaf out of the Roman history. That is, to kneel down to him and say, Put your hand on William Dale's head, sir, for sign and token, and take his service from this day forward as your bondsman and your slave. But I shan't say that and again he laughed. I shall simply say, Mr. Barradine, sir, I thank you for what you've done for me, and for the kind and open way you've done it. So much he will expect, and the rest he will understand. He was equally determined to dispatch a telegram giving the good news to Mrs. Petherick at North Ride College, and he became almost huffy when Mavis again suggested that a letter would meet the case. I don't understand you, Mave. You seem now as if you were for belittling everything. I'm not going to share sixpence to keep your aunt on tenderhooks for course of post. Mr. Barradine's town mansion stood in a commanding corner position, with its front door in the side street, and from the glimpse that Dale obtained of its hall, its staircase, and its vast depth, he judged that it was quite worthy of the owner of that noble country seat, the Abbey House. The servants were at first doubtful as to the propriety of admitting him. They said their master was at home, but they did not know if he could receive visitors. "'He won't refuse to see me,' said Dale confidently. "'Tell him it's Mr. Dale of Rodchurch, and won't detain him two minutes.' "'Very good,' said the principal servant gravely. "'But I can't disturb him if he's resting.' "'Oh, if he's resting,' said Dale, "'I'll wait. I'll make my time his time, whenever convenient to me or not. Then they led him down a passage, past a cloakroom and a lavatory, to a small room right at the back of the house. Perhaps the room seemed small only by reason of its great height. Dale, waiting patiently, examined his surroundings with curious interest. There were two old-fashioned writing-tables, 
one looking as if it was never used, and the other looking busy and home-like, with a cabinet full of every conceivable sort of note-paper, trays full of pens, and little candles to be lighted when one desired to affix seals. On a roundabout conveniently near there were books of reference that included the current volume of the London Post Office Directory. The sofas and chairs were upholstered in dark green leather, the chimney-piece was of carved marble, a few ancient and rather dismal pictures hung almost out of sight on the walls, and generally the room would have produced an impression of a repellent and ungenial kind of pomp if it had not been for the extremely human note struck by the large assortment of photographs. These were dabbed about everywhere, in panels above the chair-rail, in screens and silver frames, on the writing-table, and loose and unframed on the mantel-shelf. They were nearly all portraits of women, and some nice attractive bits among them, as Dale thought, young and cheeky ones, too, that he guessed were actresses and not nieces or cousins. He smiled tolerantly. These photographs brought to his mind a nearly forgotten fancy of his own, together with echoes of the local gossip. Round Rotchurch the talk ran that the right honorable gentleman was still a rare one for the ladies. And why not, thought Dale. A childless old widower may keep up that sort of game as long as he likes, or as long as he can, without wounding anyone's feeling. It wasn't as if her ladyship had been still alive. Sir, I hope I have not disturbed you, but I couldn't be easy till I cordially and heartily thanked you. Mr. Barradine had come in, and Dale fired off his brief set speeches. But instinct almost immediately told him that once more Mavis had been right, and he wrong. Mr. Barradine was not expecting or desiring a personal call. Not worth mentioning, nothing at all. He said these things courteously, but there was a coldness in his tone that quite froze the visitor. He seemed to be saying, really, now look here, I have had quite enough bother about you, and please don't let me have any more of it. Thank you, sir, I thank you, and er, that's all. Very glad if Mr. Barradine made the same gesture that Dale had seen a few hours ago, a wave of the right hand. But to Dale it seemed that it was different now, that it indicated languor and haughtiness. Indeed, it seemed that the whole man was different. Could this be the advocate who had spoken up so freely for a friend in trouble? All the majesty and the force, as well as the generous friendliness, had disappeared. The face, the voice, the whole bearing belonged to another man. The tired eyes had not a spark of fire in them. Those puffy bags of loose flesh that hung between the outer corners of the cheekbone and the thin bird-like nose were so ugly as to be disfiguring. The mouth, instead of looking soft and kind, although proud, now appeared to close in the unbending lines of a very obdurate self-esteem. This new aspect of his patron made Dale stammer uncomfortably, and he felt something akin to humiliation in lieu of the fine glow of gratitude with which he had come hurrying from the Euston Road. Then my duty and my thanks, and I'll say good afternoon, sir. He had pulled himself together and spoken these last words ringingly, and now grasping Mr. Barradine's hand, he gave it a mercilessly severe squeeze. Damnation! Under the horny grip Mr. Barradine emitted a squeal of pain. Confound it, my good fellow! Why the deuce can't you be careful what you're doing? 
Mr. Barradine, very angry, was ruefully examining his hand, and Dale, apologizing profusely, stared at it too. It was limp in texture, yellowish-white of color, with bluish swollen veins, some darkish brown patches here and there, and some slight glistening protuberances at the knuckle joints, an old man's hand so feeble that it could not bear the least pressure, and yet decorated with a young man's popperies. Dale noticed the three rings on the little finger, one of gold, one of silver, one of black metal, each with tiny colored gems in it, and, while heartily ashamed of his rustic violence, he felt a secret contempt for its victim. That's all right. Mr. Barradine, although still wincing, had recovered composure, and what he said now appeared to be an implied excuse for the sharpness of his protest. When you get to my time of life, you'll perhaps know what gout means. Sorry you should be so afflicted that way, sir, said Dale contritely. Mr. Barradine had rung a bell, and a servant was standing at the door. A good day to you, Mr. Dale. You're going home, I suppose? Not for a fortnight, sir. Ah, I hope to return to the Abbey on Thursday morning. And quite obviously Mr. Barradine now intended to gratify Dale by a few polite sentences of small talk, and thus show him that his offense had been pardoned. Yes, I soon begin to pine for my garden. Friday, at latest, sees me home again. I always call the Abbey home. No place like home, Dale. Dale, going out, through the long passage to the hall, felt momentarily depressed by a sense of humiliating failure in the midst of his apparent success. If only he could have fought them and beaten them alone, as a strong man fighting unaided, instead of being pulled through the battle by that venous, blotchy, ringed hand. However, he promptly tried to banish all such vague discomfort from his mind. All of it was gone when he got back to the lodging-house and found his wife established in their new room. End of chapter 5. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.